0: So, my name is Malcolm. I'm the pastor who, whenever there are passages about blood, chances are I'm going to be the one who's going to preach it. Uh, just kidding. I don't actually choose this. We, 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 we schedule these things, these things like months in advance, and then just the way that it falls, I just end up preaching all the bloody wrath of God passages. So, 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 so today I want us to talk about, we're going we're gonna to talk about attention. Attention that is integral to the Christian life. And that is the tension between mercy and justice. The tension between forgiveness and reparation. In the scriptures, it's, it's what's going on in chapter 63, verse 4. A time to punish people and a time for God to save his people. So I want to do a deep dive into these chapters and then we'll spend a fair amount of time talking about how, how we navigate that tension. So let's hop in. Verses, verses 1 to 6 are a very clear unit. Describing the bloody return of the Lord. It begins dramatically, and I want you to hear all of it one more time. In the dialogue, the dialogue that goes on in these first few verses. Who is this coming from Edom? He comes from the city of Basra, dressed in red. Who is this dressed in fine clothes? He marches forward with his great power. He says, I, the Lord, speak what is right. I have the power to save you. Why are your clothes bright red, as if you had walked on the grapes to make wine? The Lord answers, I have walked on the winepress alone. No one among the nations helped me. I was angry and walked on the nations. I crushed them because of my anger. Blood splashed on my clothes. I stained all my clothing. I chose a time to punish people, and the time has come for me to save my people. I looked around and I saw no one to help me. I was surprised that no one supported me, so I used my own power to save my people. My own anger supported me. While I was angry, I walked on the nations. In my anger, I punished them and poured their blood on the ground. This is a deeply disturbing passage just for most of us, particularly because of its bloodiness. In a world that's consistently racked and, and is now racked by the brutal and senseless violence of human war. We hear these words and we cringe. But remember, the people of God heard these words and rejoiced. Why? Because this is a text about God's monopoly on, on ultimate justice. Go back to verse 1. I, the Lord, speak what is right. I have the power to save you. The Lord uses this power first and foremost to save God's destruction of his enemies and the enemies of his people is is fundamentally in order to save them. But he also uses this power alone. Verse 3, the Lord answers, I have walked in the winepress alone. No one among the nations helped me. Not only does God engage in this brutal work of justice, but he is the only one who can do it. Think Denzel in my favorite series of movies, The Equalizer. He's a brutal vigilante who, in standing up for the innocent and the exploited, racks up a significant body count. But he does so by himself. I wanted to name this sermon John Wick Jesus, but Slim wouldn't let me. The Lord's work is his alone. It's brutal, it's just, and it's done in anger. And if we read this and think, yeah, well, that's just an Old Testament God thing. Nope, can't run from this one. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16, the heavens open, and John sees this vision. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The image in Isaiah 63 is an image of Christ when he returns. And this image in these verses is supposed to be one of comfort because it's God saying, everything and everyone that tends toward oppression, I set myself against those things and will destroy them once and for all. I'm coming for my people. This is a consistent message of the Lord over and over and over again. I am your God. You are my people. I will protect you but the rest of chapter 63 and the entirety of chapter 64 take take a slightly different tone because the because the the speaker shifts from the lord to the human perspective I'll summarize these chapters for you this is this is basically what we get from from chapter 63 verse 10 that that god saved his people and he redeemed them but then they rebel against him and so then god becomes their enemy it's like a summary of the old testament up until this point And so then the question is, how do the people respond when they know that the God who saved them has now become their enemy because of their rebellion? They beg for mercy. And chapter 64 is one big cry for mercy. Verse 1, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Basically, God, show your power on our behalf. Save us from our oppressors. Have mercy on us. Do do amazing things like like, like parting the Red Sea and sending those plagues on the Egyptians. Do do those things for us again. Save us. But it's also complicated because those cries for mercy are also interspersed with them saying how unworthy they are of that mercy. Verses 5 and 6 in chapter 64 You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We, we all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. If you're wondering what that phrase, filthy rags, that all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags, that is, the best that we do is like, is, they're, they're, they're like, like strips of cloth doused in menstrual blood. That's what that, that's what that image, that's what that image is. The best that we have to offer is is fundamentally ritually ritually unclean. Cries for mercy are inevitably linked with the recognition that you and I do not deserve mercy. It wouldn't be mercy otherwise. It would be justice. And here we have the big problem of the Christian faith and the big problem of chapter 63 and 64. Which one do you want? Do you want mercy? Or do you want justice? Which side of the sword of the Lord do you want to be on? Do you want to be on the side of the protected or the side of the oppressor? Well, I think this is often our answer. I want mercy for me, but I want justice for those who harm me. I don't want to get what I deserve, but if you wrong me, you better believe you're going to get what's coming to you. Uh, my mind was... was Rocked this week. I've had to talk about nonviolence all week. I was in I was in New York um, on Thursday at at, Co- at Columbia doing this roundtable with a brilliant philosopher, and she and I were discussing the role of forgiveness in racial justice, and it made me think practically about the relationship between mercy and justice. Thinking thinking as a Christian in a in a secular atmosphere is going to force that. But I was, I was also at Columbia when they shut down the campus to outsiders because there were two student groups, one pro-Israel and one pro-Palestine, who had organized rallies at the exact same time. The topic, topics of mercy and justice are especially poignant right now. So how does this passage help us think about them? Well, according to Jesus, we are not to choose between mercy and justice. We are supposed to seek both with equal energy. Mercy goes by another name in the New Testament, forgiveness. In Matthew 18... Peter asked Jesus how many times he has to forgive his brother or sister who sins against him. And Jesus answers with this great parable about the kingdom of God. It goes, goes like this. So there's a, there's a king who decides to settle accounts with his servants. And so he begins this process. And he and, and, and a man is brought to him who owes the king the equivalent of 10,000 bags of gold. If you're wondering how much money that is. Uh, if you assume a minimum wage of $15 an hour, 10,000 bags of gold is about $6 billion. He owes the king... Six billion dollars. And obviously, he can't pay it. And so the king orders that him, his wife, his children, and everything he has be sold in order to repay that debt. And this servant is supposed to be in prison until he can repay that debt. And so this servant, he begs for his life. And as a result, the king cancels his debt. Done. And so this servant goes out and he finds one of his fellow servants who owes him 100 silver coins, which is basically the equivalent of about $12,000. And he chokes his fellow servant and, and, and demands that he pays his debt. And, when this, and when, this other servant, when, this, when this other servant begged for his life, he had him thrown into prison to pay off his debt. And so the other servants, seeing this, get upset. They tell the king. The king calls in this servant who had owed $6 billion, and he says, I showed mercy to you. Shouldn't you show mercy to your fellow servants? And then what the king does is he hands that servant off to the jailers to be tortured until he can pay back everything that he owes. And then Jesus ends this parable with these words. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. We learn a few things about forgiveness in this passage. First, And this happens throughout the scriptures. Forgiveness is an economic idea. But second, forgiveness is about letting go. I'm going to stand by this definition of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the painful choice to eat a cost. Forgiveness is the painful choice to eat a cost. Forgiveness considered from our point of view, that is when we forgive our brothers, sisters, and neighbors, it's unilateral. It requires all from the offended and nothing from the offender. Considered from our point of view, it's also rarely a one-time thing. If you've ever been hurt, you know that even if you do forgive, you often have to keep on forgiving. Because it keeps popping up in your mind and your heart. The temptation to bitterness rises over and over again. But forgiveness is not reconciliation. Reconciliation. Reconciliation requires the investment of both parties. It it requires trust, either rebuilt or painstakingly forged in the first place. But forgiveness doesn't require any of that. All forgiveness requires is the offended deciding to eat the cost. And the Lord says, forgive. The thrust of Christ's ministry, and it's repeated by Paul, is this. Forgive constantly, constantly even that is especially your enemies sermon on the mount matthew 5:38 to 39 you've heard it you've heard it was said eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth but i tell you do not resist an evil person in this case jesus is saying do not violently do not violently resist them instead love them really yes a few verses later, it says it explicitly. This is what we confessed this morning, verses 43 to 45. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may, that you may be children of your father in heaven. This is Paul in Romans 12. On the news a few days ago, a former Israeli prime minister was on an interview. And that interviewer brought up the fact that in retaliation against the brutal terrorism that they suffered at the hands of Hamas, Israel also seems to be committing war crimes and cutting off food, food power and water to civilians. And Naftali Bennett responded. And you can look this up. And he said, are you kidding me? Are you talking about Palestinians? I'm not going to give electricity and water to my enemies. Romans 12, verses 17 to 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. But, and this is very, very important, leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, the scriptures command us to never seek revenge, ever. Instead, we are to forgive, forgive constantly, full stop. If someone wrongs you, Christ by his spirit calls you to forgive them. Why? Because according to Jesus, we're to forgive because we have been forgiven much. We extend grace because God has shown such grace to us. We love God because He loved us first, and we love our neighbor out of the overflow of that love. But that, but that, but that can't be it, Mosaic. I hope you, I, I hope you, I hope you feel it because 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 it feels like that. That can't be it. That feels heavy. We 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 want mercy for ourselves, but but to extend it constantly? Do you understand how how often wronged I am? How how the, the 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 level of things that I've suffered? Are you asking me to eat that? That's a lot of cost to eat. And here's why I think it feels this way. Because forgiveness, considered in the way that I just narrated, does not heal. Mercy alone does not heal. Mercy and forgiveness are a necessary part of the story, but they cannot be the whole story. And that's because the other face of mercy needs to be revealed. Justice, righteousness, vindication, a a reminder that, that the wrong that you suffered or the wrong that you committed is actually wrong. That it tears you apart, it tears your relationships apart, it tears our communities apart, and it tears the world apart. Mercy eats the cost, but justice stitches those things back together. Somehow things need to be set right. We can't just like consider them right. No, like we're looking forward, we have to look forward to a world where things actually are right. We want and need a world where both mercy and justice ring loudly in our ears, where, where, where we don't face the penalty of the things that we've done, and yet also everything will be made new. Where the fabric of our lives, of our communities, and our world can be stitched back together. What we need is the cross. Because at the cross, we see the center of our faith, and we see a moment where mercy and justice reach their zenith, their high point. Where the ultimate mercy is poured out on you, that by his blood, you are set free. Not by your blood, but by his blood. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the ultimate justice is poured out as well, that Christ drinks the cup of God's wrath against sin so that we don't have to. For some reason, all that matters is that that cup gets drunk and Jesus is the one who does it. And in so doing, he inaugurates a new age, what he calls the kingdom of God, because by faith in Christ, you can take part in that mercy and that justice. And and Christ is calling and equipping us to be ambassadors of that justice and that mercy everywhere we go. And I say all this because I want you to really understand how important it is for the Christian to relentlessly love our enemies. Because that is actually one of the primary applications that flow from the text that are really clear about the wrath of God. A lot of us don't know how to, like, deal with that. But here's the thing. We love our enemies as an invitation to redemption because that's how God loved us. We love even our enemies because we know that if they refuse that love, ultimate justice does not lie in our feeble, foolish hands. It lies in the capable hands of the Lord. We love even our enemies because we have to know, we have to know that the flesh and blood that we think that we're fighting against, these people are not our enemies. Our true enemies are sin, death, and the devil. And insofar as these people seek to harm us, they are acting as tools. Tools of our actual enemies. And the thing about our actual enemies, sin, death, and the devil, is that those enemies have been defeated. See, forgiveness is hard. it It is so hard to eat a cost if your spouse cheats on you. If someone hurts you or someone you love, if someone disrespects you, calls your character into question, it is so hard to forgive. And yet the word of our Savior is this, remember the mercy that I have shown you. Extend that mercy without exception because I'm going to make it right. Your responsibility is to love. And here's an objection that you might have. But things still aren't right. Aren't we supposed to be the ones to make it right? We're the body of Christ after all. Isn't our responsibility to make the world right? No. No. It's not, and you're not smart enough to do it anyway. Neither am I. None of us are. Our responsibility is to be a community that is ruled by Christ. Our responsibility is to be here, a community where forgiveness is constant and where justice is present. The world is full of domination and exploitation. People are going to hurt you, and some are going to care, and some aren't. It happens all the time, and it's going to continue to happen. People are going to do terrible things to one another. Are you going to be able to change that? No, but are you going to be able to forgive? That's the thing about forgiveness. It's, it's, it's deeply and inescapably personal. Nobody can make you do it. But I deeply believe that it is, that it is much better for us than bitterness. See, brothers and sisters, Christ has called us to be a community that is so sure of the coming of Christ, with all that that entails, that we are willing to forgive our brothers and sisters and neighbors and to actively seek reconciliation with them. That's a significant part of our witness to the world, because apart from Christ, that is a ridiculous stance to take. One of the things that continues to strike me about, uh, about, about, about Malcolm X's words, because it is so, it seems so reasonable to seek retaliation. Retaliation makes much more sense. Killing the enemy makes much more sense than dying at their hand. But that is not the logic of the cross. And that cannot be the logic of the Christian. Because the Christian is the person who by the Spirit is more willing to die for their enemy than to kill them. Because the Christian deeply believes, I am not the one who's going to make everything right. Jesus will. But among the the brothers and sisters, among those who claim to be indwelt by the Spirit of God, we can set things right here. After we finish Isaiah, which will be very soon, we only have two chapters left, we're going to likely preach through the Sermon on the Mount. And here's a sneak peek of something I'm going to press throughout throughout that series. Jesus doesn't tell us to do these seemingly ridiculous things just to reveal to us how imperfect we are. It's not just a mirror for us to just see it and be like, "Oh my gosh, I can't do that." I deeply believe that he tells us to do them because he has promised to equip us to actually do them. They're hard things to do. Goodness, gracious, they're hard. But the way that the world is going to know that we're his disciples is by our love. And that's not just our love of one another. It's also our love of our enemies. Isaiah 63 and 64 begin with a clear statement of God's bloody wrath against his enemies and the enemies of his people but they continue with a cry from his people, a cry for mercy, a cry that their sin might be forgiven, that even though they're rebellious, that they might be restored. And in Jesus, God answers that cry with a yes and. His anger is a redemptive anger, an anger that flows from love, an anger that is expended on the cross and visited upon our actual enemies, sin, death, and the devil, defanging them and plucking their talons out of our lives. And it is only by recognizing that God has promised Justice, even beyond our wildest imaginations, that we can actually forgive our brothers and sisters over and over and over again. Why? Because we serve a God of brain shattering mercy and world stitching justice. We pray with the people of God, Isaiah 64, verses 8 to 9. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are your people. And the Lord answers, I won't be angry beyond measure. I won't remember your sins forever. As a matter of fact, I won't just forget them. I will actually cleanse you. I will bring you to myself. I will make you day by day by my spirit more like me. That is what God has done for us and is doing for us in Christ and and by the Spirit. The invitation to you is to repent and to believe, to join and to form a community of constant grace, a community of constant forgiveness, a community of constant justice, where people have what they need because we share. We're going to see that in the potluck a little later. By the Spirit, that is the people and the community that we can be. And so my call to you is to forgive. Forgive that person who has harmed you. Forgive that person who will harm you. Forgive. This is the other thing. Some of you may need to forgive yourself. And this is not like this, like therapeutic forgive yourself kind of thing. No, 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 because that that can get weird. Um, what I'm what I'm what I'm saying is I think I think we hold. We hold a longer record of our own sin than the Lord does. If it's true that God's mercies for us are new every morning, what might it look like for you to actually live a life where that were true? One where every day is an opportunity for the Spirit to continue to work in and through you. My encouragement to you this week is forgive. Because you have been forgiven. Forgiven. Let's pray.